Welcome to Shmeman Speaks, featuring the words and wisdom of Father Alexander Shmeman from the archives of St. Vladimir's Seminary in New York. Let me explain how we shall organize this course. First, keeping in mind that the material that could be studied is even the liturgical, just the liturgical material is absolutely huge, endless. Uh, take uh, simply a very, very um, external description of uh, the liturgical material you'll find in addition to the great feasts of Mary, where the liturgy is concentrated on her, you'll find uh, uh, almost uh, uh, automatically uh, uh, a mariological prayer or text at the end of each group of texts, whether it's Sikiris or the canon. For example, in the Octoikos, the book of the weekly cycle, there is a canon prescribed for the Theotokos for every day of the week. You know. It's very seldom sung or read for the simple reason that it's pushed out by some saint and so on and so forth. But it's there. It has been written. Uh, and so on and so forth. So then the iconography, of course, which is, by the way, a tremendously important source of Mariology. I think that it's, it's one of those uh, when the church couldn't find words, you know, she, she found uh, uh, other ways of expressing the mystery and the Mariological iconography is, is a tremendous expression of that uh, veneration of Mary. And yet, in spite of the fact that this material, in terms of quantity, is uh, almost um, uh, impossible simply to enumerate, it would take us more than this course to, uh, the number of themes is not, is very limited. And I must tell you in advance that uh, uh, preparing this course, revising uh, my notes of, of, uh, of the course I gave a few years ago, I was once more struck by, uh, by something which I can express um, uh, in this way, that uh, it, it, by the sobriety of the Mariological veneration of Mary, those themes, when finally understood properly, uh, are extremely sober and extremely deep theologically. So we cannot take uh, even a, um, a superficial survey of the whole material. We'll deal with those themes and with the most significant expression of them in liturgy, in iconography, and so on. But the general plan will, will be as follows. We'll begin with a very brief, of necessity, history of the Mariological, uh, 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 I wouldn't use the term cult, uh, the veneration of Mary in the Church, not simply in order to pay our respect to history, which today is the queen of sciences, you know, what is not historical is, uh, uh, is not acceptable, but because of that one major argument which must be analyzed and uh, answer, and that is the really almost full silence on Mary of the early church. 
in other terms that uh, uh, this is something which requires our attention and um, uh, after that silence which lasts for almost three centuries uh, what could be described as a mariological explosion all of a sudden not all of a sudden but uh, and then uh, the permeation of the entire uh, liturgy of the church with mariological material so a history of mariology i don't know how um, how concise i can be i wish i were because i would like to come to the very essence but that is a very important uh, introduction to the whole course now the second the second the, the, the then after this history or historical aspect historical dimension of mariology will come to the themes themselves and although i am absolutely sure that the order which I propose may not be the only possible order. Another, uh, somebody else could find a, a different way of approach, but I try to put that in, in, in the way in which it seems to me that unique uh, vision um, was, how should I say, you know, uh, maybe the Polaroid, uh, uh, the Polaroid technique in the photography can be the only adequate example, mutatis mutandis, when you detach the thing, it's still almost confused, and then little by little the whole thing comes alive. Now, the real interesting question to me, uh, uh, inspiring question is, how that image, which I'm absolutely fooled, was in the church from the very beginning, uh, uh, began to sort of... Um, uh, be filled with, with, with content, with a kind of how the church responded to something which at first she had without almost knowing it, so to speak. And uh, obviously we have to start because this is maybe uh, the fundamental principle of Orthodox Mariology by the first theme, which is Mary and Christ. And that is the Christological foundation of Mariology, the Christological foundation of Mariology. But here again, rather than being abstract, because uh, Mariology is, is, is expressed in liturgy, we'll center that study on, um, on the feast of the Nativity, which, by the way, is the first Mariological feast in the Church. Or rather, it is in connection with the feast of the Nativity, December 25th, that the first Mariological feast appeared, the synopsis of the Holy Theotokos, which today is uh, hardly celebrated, but which is the starting point of the entire Mariological uh, development. Then after this uh, Christological foundation, uh, in other terms that it is by, um, which in, in, in simple English means this, it is by, by looking at Christ, it is by venerating Christ, it is by, by um, going deeper and deeper in the mystery of God-man holding Christ. Holy God, holy man, consubstantial to God in divinity, consubstantial to us in his humanity. It is, uh, uh, the mystery of the two natures in Christ is by going deeper and deeper into that, 
that the church could not avoid. So Christ's humanity is not an aftermath. Just as my humanity, your humanity is not an aftermath. It is something that we received with our uh, blood and flesh from. And, and so it is there that, that the first uh, the foundation appears. It is not by being tired of Christ and by looking for secondary centers of devotion that the church found Mary. It is from Christ that she came to us, just as she came from her to us. And uh, uh, the next theme, which is, which is adjacent, so to speak, to that one, is one of the most difficult ones. And uh, I almost decided to avoid it, and then I decided it would be totally dishonest to myself, if, although it will be greatest of all difficulties in this course, and that is exactly this uh, virgin mother the motherhood and the virginity, the Panagia, uh, the second. Then come the, 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 uh, the themes which are, uh, in my methodology, uh, the easiest way of dealing with them, although nothing is easy, nothing is easy in this course, to me at least, would be to, to go by the great feasts of the Church, Mariological feasts, which correspond, in fact, to the various dimensions of, of uh, uh, the, the, the content of the veneration of Mary. Uh, and I'm using the, the traditional terminology theme here. The first of those themes is Mary as the new Eve. And that, of course, is the, the Feast of Annunciation. And that is also, you can say, the cosmical dimension of Mariology, or, and this is not just to use terms in, in, in a kind of, it is the Mariological dimension of the Orthodox cosmology. Mary the New Eve, and uh, the liturgical revelation, the liturgical epiphany of what that means, epiphany, manifestation of that, is in this unique Spring Feast of the Annunciation. The next one is the theme of the Mary as the icon, the image, and the epiphany of the Church. Mary and the Church. And here again, it's not a Catholic. It's not uh, yesterday at, uh, at the sacrament of matrimony. We always hear that uh, Christ and the Church as the bride. Mary the bride the church, the bride. And that is, of course, the content, the epiphany of the feast of the presentation of the Theotokos to the temple on the 21st of November. Needless to say that for each of those feasts, I'll give you little historical notes when, how they appeared, and uh, what, uh, what was their development. Then the next theme, I mean, the Mary and the world, Mary and the church, and finally, of course, it is impossible to, to avoid that theme because it's, it's part of that trichotomy of our Christian faith. The world, the church, and the kingdom. Mary and the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, the epiphany of that theme is found in the feast of the Dormition. The Dormition, the theme says, of the Theotokos, which is one of the... Uh, 
to use a human language subtle piece, to use a more religious, probably one of the most mystical pieces. It's really, here we can say, the church saw something. The church has had an experience here. By the way, all of those things are the reflection, the expression of the church's experience. Now, the next theme, the one which is probably the most popular in Mariology on a devotional and uh, popular level, is Mary as the protection, a crop, protection, rooted in rooted in uh, the theme which is central in the liturgy, the Mary at the cross. Stabat Mater Dolorosa Juncta Crucens Lactimosa. And this theme, you know, which I, which is a famous late Latin text, exists in, 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 in every, uh, in the whole Christian culture, Permeza. This is thy mother, this is thy son, you know, and then uh, this silent, uh, Beginning with, of course, the, with the words of Saint Simeon. Um, well, I forgot to say this. When I say Christmas, I should add Christmas Epiphany purification, which is myological feast. I mean, this is what complex. So Mary as the cross, Mary as the protection, Mary as as the uh, to use uh, uh, the most popular Russian hymn to the Mary is the Stupnitsa intent protectors, you know, and what all that means. And finally, leading us to our, um, to our conclusions, if we reach them, which is not guaranteed at all, uh, uh, is Mary and the Holy Spirit, which is exactly taking us to something like Mary today, in our life, in the church, in the world, in relationship to, to, to all those problems which I enumerated, secularism, this and that, you know, uh, body, matter, and so on. So this, this is what um, I can uh, offer in the hope that uh, we will, uh, that we will um, be able to cover that. As I said, I, let's hope, but without any guarantee. Now for those of you, and I think I should add this, who take the course for credit, I understand there is a couple of those here. Uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the requirement uh, will be um, a paper on one of the Mariological themes, either those, I mean, taking one feast or one theme, because, for example, uh, Mary and the Church is, is uh, in the temple, is uh, a very rich theme, and sub-themes, you know, how the Church has come to apply the whole uh, temple terminology and what it meant and so on and so forth, but we'll discuss uh, uh, those uh, um, papers uh, one day stay here for five minutes after and those who are not taking for credit will leave so as not to bother them with. And also I will prepare a uh, very short reading list, uh, uh, however what I would recommend is not so much uh, reading about cardiology but maybe to to familiarize yourself with, um, uh, there is this very convenient book, at least for the for, for major feasts, and that is including Christmas also, which is the Festo Mineon. Uh, uh, there is um, 
the Rana. Out of translation, so uh, we can uh, we can um, uh, find this rather easily. Uh, with one remark, here again, you know, the whole problem of translation comes very much alive, you know, because uh, what is uh, a kind of sacred and incredibly, incredibly beautiful poetry, let's say in Greek, uh, and in Slavonic, which is a replica of the Greek, uh, becomes sometimes like the New York editorial, even worse, uh, in um, and uh, I would say that 60% uh, of Mariology is irrecuperable in English. Does it mean that we have to lose uh, the themes? Not at all, because as you will see, in fact, the main uh, means of expressing Mariology is not only in hymnology, but in the biblical material. And here, of course, the Bible, thanks to God, is always translatable. Uh, so we have that difficulty. Uh, it's very, uh, I read to you at the beginning of the last lecture, you know, the, uh, this let no profane hand touch the living out of God, and I'm, I'm sure you understand what it all means, you know. But it is, uh, I don't have the Greek uh, text here, but remember the Slavon in my heart, you know, it's you know, it's, 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 it's great poetry, which is not rendered here, you know, and, and therefore we are handicapped, so to speak, in, uh, but I'm absolutely sure that uh, just as the theme of Mary has been a universal inspiration for culture, for art, for literature, for uh, poetry, I'm absolutely sure that uh, uh, our church here will be blessed with a kind of maybe a renewed um, uh, uh, expression of that veneration once that veneration itself returns. And, uh, and uh, Mary, who... Um, who has not been abandoned to Orthodox Church, that's for sure not, you know, but maybe uh, the understanding of what all that means has been uh, very, very uh, uh, much reduced, you know, when all that comes back, um, we'll understand uh, how to phrase her the proper way. So this is the, um, this is the um, plan, the method, and uh, uh, I, I hope it's all rather uh, rather clear. Now we coming to the um, we coming to the first part. We have still some time to um, the first part of the first chapter of this course, the first uh, problem, and that is precisely this um, historical uh, development. Uh, it is here, it is historical development in its two forms. Mary in the New Testament, Mary in the life, the piety, the thought of the early church, this double expression that we find the greatest concentration of the mariological, anti-mariological argumentation. Now, I'm not giving this course as an apologetic course. The Church has never preached anything except Christ and Him crucified. Uh, I'm always afraid of all those uh, uh, presentations of orthodoxy that begin by saying we have beautiful visions. 
because I'm sure that there is a sect somewhere in Pamir which has even more beautiful uh, visuals, uh, or at least that some people could find very beautiful. You know. uh, I hate this selling orthodoxy in terms of uh, I, I'm working against the seminary, you know, this uh, disseminating iconography everywhere. You know, you can't go to any kitchen today and find between uh, the shopping list and so on a calendar, you know, which says uh, uh, which says. Uh, Michalchuk funeral home and, and the early 15th century icon of the Holy Trinity in it, you know. I, I, if I were uh, not the Pope, at least the Bishop, thank you God you don't risk at all, uh, uh, <laughs> I would forbid all that and reduce the, uh, the income of the seminary immediately. Uh, 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 so, uh, I do not think that the cult or the veneration of Mary is at extra. I don't have to explain that to the one who doesn't believe in the church, who doesn't believe in I'm trying right now, since out of laziness, since I'm giving that course, I decided to spend all that time when I'm writing my weekly sermon for Russia, you know, on Radio Liberty. I also deal with Mary, and I just wrote it before I came here, saying that I'm, I'm not answering the stupid arguments of the small little Marxists who think that the world is explainable by the table of multiplication on the one hand and the theory of additional value in Marx. You know. I just refuse to even discuss things with that idiot. Uh, but uh, it would be a tremendous error, tremendous mistake to think that we can uh, the, the, the kirigma of the church, the kirigma of the church is not Mariological. It's only from Christ and that means from the church that we can receive the key to Mariology. Not in any other way, because the whole Mariology is rooted in the experience of the Church, precisely, and has no other justification, none whatsoever. I remember a Protestant theologian with whom I spent one night, one night only, thanks to God, in theological debate, uh, said to me, but Father, I'm not living in the world in which angels uh, bring good news to girls. I said, just too bad for you. Uh, in the church we do, you know, you, you don't, obviously, you don't, because from that conference on, on, on urban renewal, you probably moved to a debate on, uh, on new hermeneutics, or whether it's still possible to speak of God up there or down here, you know, and in that strange existence, um, the very idea that you can, uh, you can speak about angels and girls and so on and so forth is, is, is just impossible. It's like, like speaking about Mariology as, uh, at a conference of marketing Coca-Cola for Argentina, you know. Uh, it just won't, won't work. Uh, therefore, when I speak about the anti-Mariological arguments as being mainly historical, I'm not at all trying to, to, um, to um, supply with apologetic arguments. Unfortunately, Christian apologetics always, almost always, not always, but very often in the 20th century sounds something like this. Believe me, Herr Professor, we are not as stupid as we look, you know. Uh, we have an explanation for everything which you can accept, you know. So don't worry, you know. It's not that which you mean. Of course we don't believe in angels, the figure of speech, you know. Of course, uh, you know, all that, you know, and this is not, you know, very important, but, you know, well, and then begins the other level, you know, it's, it's a kind of mythological, charismatic way of putting things which otherwise would be not existential enough, but then, um, 
by that time they have lost me, I have lost them, uh, so we need this historical argument for ourselves. For example, that silence of the, of, of the early church is a very significant phenomenon. It's not that I have to explain the weak. It is that it, it also is a revelation of something very uh, important. Thus, we have those two, we have those two um, uh, questions, not problems. Questions. One is um, the problem of um, the, um, uh, the purely exegetical problem of um, uh, the, the peculiar character of the mariological material in the New Testament. Peculiar. In what that uh, uh, of only of the four Gospels, only two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, with very substantial differences, have in a different story. Um, both, for example, uh, when uh, having that genealogy of Christ, you know, take it, uh, give it to, to Joseph, uh, right? I mean, uh, and then how is the son of David, Christ is the son of David, uh, so all this, uh, there are plenty of problems now I'll give you a special reading book or a reading list on that because if we go into each of the New Testament problems the whole course will be falsified, it will be an exegetical course and not a liturgical course so I, uh, however all I want to stress at this point is that these problems on the exegetical level are very real, very real and, and, and the cannot be simply dismissed uh, if we take the exegesis, the explanation of the New Testament. Seriously, we have to, um, to, to understand. So, now, the second problem, as I said, is the, uh, well, well, I mentioned already, the total absence of the other writings, of, of except maybe the revelation of John, we have that woman dressed in, in, in sun, uh, almost total absence of Maria mentioned one in the book of Acts on the day of uh, after the after Christ's resurrection you know that all the disciples were together with the women and Mary the mother of uh, and then after that you know in fact uh, almost uh, absent um, and then the, the so uh, this raises first of all the problem of method of methodology I'm who am I to to um, to um, preach a new exegetical method. Uh, this is <coughs> the object of endless debates among especially the New Testament, what it means to explain, what is, and so on and so forth. All I want to tell you, because I need it for my own use later on, is that what uh, right now is considered as sort of um, self-explanatory, self-evident, and requiring no justification is the, um, uh, the so-called historical and critical method. In other terms, uh, whether you take the um, lower criticism or the higher criticism, or criticism or so, and so on and so forth, the method is of, of and which has I don't deny that a certain value for establishing the text 
for um, for uh, uh, having the right that maybe sometimes they're having mistakes in copying and so on and so forth. But when it comes to the exegesis, to the explanation, what, as you all know, because the exegesis, the exegetical uh, theology developed within Protestantism, uh, was sort of persecuted in the Roman Catholic Church and happily ignored in the Orthodox Church. You know. uh, uh, because of that, uh, this method, the historical and critical method, linguistic method, are considered as self-evidences. There is uh, uh, now my first remark is exactly that I reject this monopoly. I do not think uh, that this that this double source of the exegetical method by finding the as much historical truth and then compare the text by philological and so on and so forth that this can lead us to the understanding of uh, the full understanding of the Holy Scripture. It may help. It may not give us the whole thing. Now, therefore, what is missing? I think that the orthodox exegetical science, which has always been in a tremendous inferiority complex towards the West, oh, always, the, the, the orthodox conservatism usually consists in uh, reaching not today's Protestant exegesis, but yesterday's. But after tomorrow, it will be today's, you know, it will be old and venerable enough. Uh, what is missing is what I think has always been missing. And unless the orthodox theologians someday meet somewhere and start discussing serious things, uh, uh, it will not be repaired. What is missing is the ultimate reference of orthodox theology, which neither the Catholic nor the Protestant theology can have, and that is to the experience of the Church herself. Now, since I'm going to use the term experience many times, let, it, let me once and for all explain in what sense, in what uh, semantical content I'm using. Why? Because in English, and in general in Western languages, the term experience has acquired kind of individual subjectivistic and psychological connotations. If there is something of which the theologian is afraid it's of experience, because then you'll have to deal with dreams of old women, you know, and uh, how can that be theology, you know. Theology is a style and science cannot depend on personal experiences. Okay, and in Russian, however, the term opet has never acquired this uh, connotation, this psychological reduction. So to put it very briefly and very simply, when I use the term experience of the church, first of all, I claim that such experience exists. That there is not only the, the sum of all experiences of individuals making up the church. No, there is something which transcends our individual experiences. My individual experience may lead me as it leads many 
people whom I know to prefer a nice, mystical, dark church at Vespers to the noisy church uh, uh, on Sunday morning at the Liberty. There are people who are in love with the Panisci. Just have a kind of sentiment, beautiful indeed, you know. Uh, those who would prefer Good Friday to Easter and Easter to Good Friday, you know, and things like that, we can even debate that, you know. And those who like Botnyansky and those who like uh, some mysterious Balamo chant three. Uh, all these are experiences. And th th this is subjective. And this is, each one has the right to some extent. You know, not, we are not uniform people. What I claim and what the Orthodox theology will have to debate one day when we finally liberate ourselves from, from that Western captivity is that the real source of theology is exactly the church as experience. The experience of the church and the church's experience. That means that what we call tradition is not Patrologia Mean, published in Paris in, in 1853 and, and the following years, but the continuity of the church's life expressed mainly, not exclusively in worship, which into which we enter. We may not enter. We spend three weeks, five years, ten years without entering, attending and not entering that experience. So that experience is there. And uh, 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 it's very, it's more difficult to explain because it's such a rich experience, but it is also an objective experience. And it is that the liturgical theology is the study of that experience. Now, therefore, when we come to, to the exegesis, to solving those problems of the biblical uh, insufficiency of evidence concerning Mary, of the sons of the, of, the, of the early church, we have to keep in mind that um, uh, our main uh, um, locus for solving those problems is not in, an, in the application of the same exegetical method which can reach that plateau and go no further, but in precisely asking, trying to discourage very difficult the experience of the church. But let me uh, we'll, uh, introduce that answer. First of all, when we speak about, about um, uh, the silence concerning Mary in the New Testament and in the early church. There is not too much reason to differentiate these, uh, uh, these two realities. For the New Testament is a collection of books written within the church, by the church, part of her tradition. The starting point, the source, the controlling factor but still it's not books written by uh, Luke, Ph.D., who was more historical and therefore, but at the same time being medical doctor, he sort of, uh, and close to Paul, uh, it was not written by uh, 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 Matthew, who mainly was from his own ivory tower, was trying to prove to the Jews that Christ is the Messiah. Whoever wrote Matthew, Luke, John, Mark, these are collections of texts constituting the, 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 the church, I mean, and you know that by now, absolutely. These are church's texts. This is not um, uh, something 
self-sufficient and self-explanatory. That's why the biblical societies have never had any a real success among the Orthodox. I mean, it doesn't mean that we have to favor to prefer the copies of the Bible, uh, but we could, we just could never believe that if you finally go to the three billion Bibles that were by themselves, you know, the Bible is the book of the community of the church reflecting an experience, which therefore puts the whole thing in a, in a, in a very different perspective than if you simply use, uh, use this uh, exegetical method consisting on saying Mary is mentioned in Gospel of St. John twice, uh, in the Book of Acts once, in Mark practically never, uh, and so on and so forth, you know. Uh, all, all of this is, is, is leading us nowhere. But say that these books were written, or these texts were born within the experience of the Church as its first expression can lead us somewhere. And where it leads us is to, to, to a fact which very often is forgotten that uh, when we speak of, um, of, um, of uh, the early Church and of Mariology. All those who, who claim that Mariology is a kind of addition forget that the list of additions which appear after the early, after the first and the fourth century includes such things which today for us are the sconditio sine qua non of our ecclesiastical existence. The church very happily lived without futures. What would the orthodox do if they would come to an end to their building farms and so on and so forth? There is nothing more more strange to St. Stephen, the proto-martyr, that the first thing the Christians would have to do is to build a little St. Peter and Paul chapel somewhere, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, does it mean that the church was a, a something uh, going against it? Uh, without the church. The church lived very, very happily without happily. I mean, let's not use that vulgar term, but with the fullness of experience without nine out of ten feasts. Uh, Christmas. Again, you know, Christianity without Christmas. Impossible, right? Impossible. Simply impossible. Where is the little town in Bethlehem? And so on and so forth. Uh, nowhere. The early church never heard about the Feast of Nativity. Uh, does it mean that this Nativity appears from, of course, Professor Norden wrote two volumes, saying that it, it was, of course, born somewhere in kind of, I don't know where, an upper Nile from some strange experience of somebody about whom only he ever heard, you know. Uh, but then, having been born, they accept it everywhere. Uh, it is uh, not the feet, <coughs> the saints. There's no cult of saints in the early church. Of course, the Protestant says, we told you so. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, all, all what it means is that when we speak about the so-called mariological silence, it is explainable very easily by the fact that Somewhere between the 3rd and the 4th century, there took place a radical change within the whole life of the Church. And without understanding that radical change, which the Protestants always explain as being in metamorphosis, Karnak spent so much of his dogma and explaining 
how the church uh, simply denied what she was. At the beginning, it became something else. But today, not even Protestants would maintain that Harnack's theory, uh, because it's so. Uh, the change was absolutely radical. But the nature of the change, misinterpreted by Protestant historians because of their, of their literalism, of their worshipping of that historical method, the nature of that change was something like this. And, and that is a good key to almost every aspect of the church's history development. The church changed so as to remain the same. In order to be the epiphany, the manifestation, the gift, the presence, the transforming power, which she is, the epiphany of the kingdom, the presence of Christ, the presence of the Pentecost, but above everything else, precisely this, this kind of the one which is not yet already here at his table of his kingdom to be all that. The church had to take one particular form in the in while in her Judaic surroundings. A different form during her expansion in the Greek Roman world, and a different form when, in fact, she won. Uh, she won, and her greatest danger was precisely to dissolve that victory in a kind of mysteriological uh, religiosity. So it is only against that background that not Mary is absent. Not Mary is absent from the early worship. The candle is absent. The center is absent. The Dikiri and Pikiri are absent. The, the great Amaphore and the small Amaphore and the middle Amaphore are absent. Uh, the feasts are absent. The churches are absent. The icons are absent. Uh, does it mean that all of a sudden, as the Protestants say, some strange man appears and says, let me produce iconography. Uh, and everyone begins to write a... Uh, uh, it is precisely from what is born, from what is born the, 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 the Christian church, from the negation of the temple. It must die so as to rise again. Not simply to put a little bit of, uh, of three barren cross that we rule today. The inheritance, in, uh, the pagan temple would put as many three barren crosses as we can, as fully orthodox. Uh, and, the temple had to die so as that for the, 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 the Christian church to appear. The cult had to die so that the, 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 the liturgy could appear. Uh, a total transformation of art that took place in the catacomb art had to take place so that the icon, the transcendence, uh, the immanence of the transcendent, the vision of heaven itself could appear. Now, this is so much deeper than the platitudes we write in manuals of history, you know. One metamorphosis, the second, the influence. They always influence you. No one could ever think for himself according to Protestants, you know. Moses was influenced by this, and Babylon by that, and plagiarists uh, for 2,000 years, you know. All evangelists without saying that copied from Mark. Mark copied from Ur Marcus, who never existed, you know, and so on and so forth. Where is that circus to come to an end, though? Know? Uh, if we believe that truly God is the church, 
that the, the church is consubstantial to Christ and what? Then those processes have a tremendous depth, which we, to understand that, we have first of all to abandon those cheap explanations in terms of little human influences. So, uh, my main point right now, from which we'll start next time, is that what is this first question mark which impresses our weak nerves, uh, that uh, the nativity of the Virgin is not a, uh, not a, uh, a biblical feature, to which is so simple to answer, but if she existed, she was born. <laughs> and, uh, maybe it's not biblical, but it's very human to be born, you know, and, and uh, from that point of view, we still can contemplate what, what, what it meant. And it's also natural to be dead, and it's natural for the church to ask first, then to rejoice about and finally to venerate a very unique death of a very unique uh, human being, and so on and so forth. All this belongs on the one hand to the mystical experience of the church, and to the other hand, excuse me, to the common sense. Just as it is only within a certain uh, mental context or decadence that we can say that when we say, oh, Theotokos, save us, we therefore think that she is the savior of the world. Just as the whole early church prayed to the departed members of the church, or Apronomus, pray for us, which is today the sign of the canonized saint. For me, you will serve a panikida. To say Herman, you can say ora for novice. Now, it all depends uh, whether save us uh, is, 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 is understood in this way or in that way, right? The context determines. So, ending this uh, very introductory lecture, I only wanted to tell you that the method which we are using is not, you know, simply to answer somebody else's questions but rather to go deeper for ourselves in that epiphany. And therefore, first of all, next time, we'll deal with the three first centuries. I mean, not that we will not deal with something else. I would like to finish the whole development in two hours next year. We'll deal with those three first centuries. The, uh, and you will be surprised, I'm sure, of how much that silence is full of men. How much that silence is not simply negative, not the kind of I don't know, but is in fact the first very important theological dimension of Mariology. Very important theological dimension. It is from that silence that religion comes. It is from that fundamental basic humility, which is the very essence of Mary, that uh, that kind of glorification begins to dawn. And so this will be on as number one on our agenda next Monday, and I'll try to prepare the bibliography for next time. This has been Schmemann Speaks, featuring the words and wisdom of Father Alexander Schmemann. For more, visit St. Vladimir's Seminary online at svots.edu.